He's been fired at and fired more than once. And returning to the real world for Patch Baker after years in the U.S. Marine Corps was, in his own words, a complete disaster. Not one to be beaten, though. His grit and determination and his service dog, Reacher, helped set him on a path to change the world. Hello, welcome to The Long Leash. I'm James Jacobson. Patch Baker's story is an extraordinary one. One born partly during and partly after his time in the military. His life has been full of high highs and very low lows, all of which have made him the man that he is today. Patch Baker spent nearly 15 years serving in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Horn of Africa, And when his time in the military ended, he continued to serve the country when he joined the U.S. State Department and later the United States Secret Service. In 2013, Patch was shot in the chest in Baghdad. His next move would be to return to civilian life and the so-called real world. What would follow would be a challenging and fascinating transition to life after the military. Now, Patch spends most of his time helping businesses create extraordinary results and growth with a particular focus on the veteran community. Patch Baker is a U.S. Marine Corps veteran, an investor, a business development consultant, and the CEO of Mobius Media Solutions. This is a deep and wide-ranging conversation about Patch's evolution, and we start in a very important place talking about his service dog, a PTSD service dog named Reacher. Patch Baker, thanks so much for being with us today. You got it, man. Happy to be here. You have such an interesting story, but because this is Dog Podcast Network and The Long Leash, I want to start with Reacher. Tell me about Reacher. Reacher is an awesome puppy. He is a... Dutch Shepherd. He is my service dog. He works a lot. I travel a lot. So that means he works a lot. We just went on a a five-day trek and uh, that was complete with multiple airports and multiple meetings and bars and restaurants and events and lots and lots of people coming up to me. And he is a champ. Now, I will tell you, we've been back since Sunday, and I think he slept from Sunday to Wednesday. But <laughs> you overworked him. Well, I don't know if it's overwork because he loves it. But when he's done, I mean, it takes such a effort on his part mentally to stay, you know, in that front brain. I, I don't know a whole lot about dog anatomy, but having a service dog, I've learned more than I think most people have. And you know, the way I understand it, and forgive me for anybody that knows better than this, but uh, paraphrasing from what I've understood is that they, they have, you know, front brain and, and rear brain and front brain is when they're actively working and listening and, you know, paying attention to what I have to say or what I need in that moment. And then you have rear brain, which is, you know, Oh, squirrel. And, you know, just regular, you know, dog stuff. And when I keep him in front brain for a long amount of time, which is, really easy to do with him because he's a very good dog, Mm -hmm. but most dogs can't hold that for as long as he does. Even military service dogs and police 
working dogs. I have been on four or five teams where dogs were present. And even them that are supposed to be trained at the, you know, the highest level to go out and, you know, go through doors and all that kind of stuff. They, they can only do it about, you know, 20, 30 minutes, an hour max. And then you got to put them in the back of the truck or back of the Humvee or, you know, you gotta, you gotta go give them a break. Yeah. Well, let's explore what Reacher does as a service dog. First of all, why do you need a service dog and what does he do for you? Yeah. So, uh, Richard does a lot of things. I think he's got about 60 commands, uh, that he can, you know, actively do. And some of them, he doesn't require a command, which is, uh, you know, something pretty impressive. He is not driven on treats. He's not driven on toys. He's not driven on, you know, peanut butter. (laughs) He just wants to serve me. And, um, we do a lot of fun stuff together. I have two little boys and and they do a lot of stuff with him. But for the most part, he is command driven when needed. But for the most part, he knows his role. And his role in my life is everything from crowd control and crowded areas. I'll throw myself under the bus here. I was in the Marine Corps 14 and a half years, left there and went overseas as a a contractor later on and um, have been in that security world for a long time. And uh, now my spidey senses are a lot higher than I want them to be. Although I'm back in a relatively safe place. I walked around the corner one day in a grocery store and a gentleman, probably 70 years old, rounded the corner at the same time I did. And before I realized what happened, I'd punched that guy straight in the chest. And I looked down and before, I mean, I didn't even know what happened. And I looked down and he was wearing a Vietnam veteran hat. And I was like, what have I just done? And uh, fast forward uh, a little bit. I had woken up in the middle of the night and, um, you know, get out of my bed and punch a hole in the wall. Um, And that was, you know, I just nightmares that I just couldn't. I couldn't distinguish that it was a nightmare. And then I did a physical action in real life, which is, is not good, you know? And, um, you know, it, it worried me and bothered me and it scared my wife. And so we ended up getting Reacher and Reacher does nightmare interruption for me. He does crowd control for me. I'm pretty broken up from military service and he, you know, goes and gets things for me. He picks things up off the floor for me. He will use his body to either help me open a door or, you know, hold a door while I go through it. So he is a PTSD service dog, not to be confused with an emotional support dog. Right. He does, you know, he does assist me in daily activities for physical needs more than anything else it's the physical things that help me now the things that he does like when i'm sleeping and he comes over and he can sense that i'm either having a nightmare or typically starting to have a nightmare and he will come over and you know he he's an escalation dog so he starts out basically trying to lick my hand or move my hand or just paw at me instead of waking me up. Cause if you can get me to roll over most of the time and not, we have some, some cameras in my house that we've kind of paid attention to how he does it. But his goal is to do the minimal possible 
without waking me up. I mean, that that's ultimately the goal. Does he succeed at that every single time? No, but you know, he, that's what his job is all the way up to jumping up on the bed and standing on my chest and licking my face or barking in my face, whatever it takes. So, and by the way, when he's doing that, he's not command driven. So he, even if I were to tell him, no, he probably wouldn't, he wouldn't stop until I was awake. Tell me a little bit about how Reacher came into your life. That's a crazy story. So I, I went through all the regular routes and, you know, the VA didn't help me do that. He, you know, he was, he was very elusive. Um, <laughs> I, I tried for years to do it. And then I ended up meeting somebody who introduced me to somebody who made it happen for me. But it is not an easy process. There are lots of people out there that say they're creating service dogs and they're not. And I've met people like that. And it is frustrating beyond all belief um, because even if you get a dog that you have an emotional connection to that does not serve you, you're less likely to get the dog that you need to actually perform the work, which is the situation that most veterans, in my experience, have gotten. Um, And that is, it's a shame. It takes a lot of work to not just get a service dog, but to keep a service dog active on a regular basis. I have a trainer that goes in or that comes and gets him and takes him away and does reinforcement training. And it is a constant deal. As a matter of fact, right now, Reacher is nowhere around Mm -hmm. uh, because he's at training. And that is, uh, that is something that he does. He goes to training just like, you know, kids go to school, maybe not as often, but it is a constant thing to keep them working. How often does he go to training? Three days a week. Okay. Let's walk through the process. You had a, a trainer that you found in Texas, yep. which is where you adopted Reacher from. How did you go about finding her, finding Reacher, and what was the process that they used to train both of you? So I went through the process of, you know, just signing up for websites for <laughs> a long time, and it, it never worked. They just put you on the, you know, a newsletter list. That never worked for me. In my experience, and I know some people that have some really great dogs, it has always been part of the referral network. It has always been the way I got introduced is another veteran introduced me to somebody who introduced me to somebody and I got a dog. But most people that have great dogs, in my experience, and this might make some people upset, but in my experience, They don't get free dogs unless there's some PR play. They don't get high quality dogs unless there's a significant amount of money changing hands. And I mean, these dogs are not cheap. These dogs are 50, 60, $70,000. You're talking about two to three years of a very high quality dog getting very high quality training from multiple people. You cannot train them from the same person all the time because then they become dependent on that person. And like any service dog, not all the dogs graduate the program. No, a very, very small percentage of the dogs. My dog was actually supposed to be a, what is it called? Border patrol dog. Mm. That's what my dog was going to do. Reacher does not have bite drive like they like to have bite drive. Bite? Bite drive, yes. Okay. 
So he just didn't have that. Will he pick things up? Absolutely. He will. Will he use his mouth? Absolutely. He will. Will he play with a, a stick or a rope and play tug of war? Sure. He just didn't have the bite and shake drive that they like their dogs to have. Now, that does not mean that all Border Patrol dogs are driven to bite people. It means when required, <laughs> they will bite part people. Part of the job, right? Yeah. It's part of the job. So he actually was a retread from that program. So he was a dropout on that, mm-hmm. but completely excelled in the service space. And he is, he's really, really smart. I mean, he can retain a lot of information. And I would say that Reacher is far more intuitive than 90% of the other dogs that I've ever met in my life. And I grew up with dogs. I grew up on a farm. I had dogs. I had loyal dogs, fun dogs. I had dogs that would go out and chase cattle for us. And, you know, but they were not anywhere near what Reacher is. And that is because I got lucky with a very good dog, with a very good trainer, with a good understanding of what I needed to do to be a good human. And that uh, all played a part. But he intuitively wants to please me. Unlike anything I've ever seen before, I, I, I know other people that have great dogs that have that same relationship with them. Right. Um, but this dog looks at me and tries to figure out what I want to do next, which is it's weird how good he is at trying to serve his human. Again, let's talk about the woman in Texas where you spent some time, Linda. And how did you and Linda, like, how did your first meeting go? Um, it was interesting. We met a lot on Zoom prior to me going down there. Mm-hmm. She asked a lot of questions. She, I think she asked a lot of the right questions. She had been around a lot of veterans, a lot of police officers, a lot of uh, active duty military police. That's military and police, but also had worked with a lot of veterans. So she understood the mindset when you're on duty and when you're off duty, when you're on active duty, when you're not. And uh, I think that was super helpful. And the grand scheme of things, though, I think she had a lot of it planned out before I ever got there. She had already kind of figured out, you know, who was going to be my pup. Um, she had, I think she had three or four probably in mind, but the first one worked. And I I hung out with Richard the first day and I actually took him to my hotel room the first night, which was kind of weird because I, I didn't, you know, I didn't know how to do anything with him yet. It was just like, hey, go hang out, see if you like each other type thing. Um, and you know, Reacher scares a lot of people. He's kind of funny. He's, um, he's got the, the big ears and he, he looks, you know, just his, his resting face is, is one that people take notice of. It's intimidating. Well, I think he's intimidating to people that are uneducated, which is, Hmm. you know, he's, he doesn't have the poodle face, you know, (laughs) he doesn't have that face. He's got a face that looks serious most of the time. Um, but he's just a big you know, I don't want to say he's a, he's a big old teddy bear. Cause he's not, cause that's not how he was raised where, you know, he plays with my kids and loves playing with them. Uh, but when they start getting loud, he's like, mm, I'm going to go somewhere else. So Reacher also has like an off mode and an on mode when he's he does. on duty. Yeah. And when he's off, tell me about that. Yeah. Well, if he needs to be full on duty, meaning that he does not get a break, he puts his vest on mm-hmm. and um, well, you put his vest on. If he can do that, then he's well, really good. 
Well, he does help me. So I don't bend over very well. I have a really bad back and I don't bend over very well. So he actually, I give him a command and he steps up on a very high stool so that all I do is hold the vest out and he puts his head through the vest and then he stands there so that I can buckle him without bending over. The same with his leash. Every time we go out and he needs his leash on, he steps up higher so I don't have to bend over. And he knows exactly what that is Mm. for both of those things. Okay, so he has his vest on, and then how does he act differently? Now, when he has his vest on, he knows that he's in work mode nonstop. It means he does not get a break until the vest comes off. If he's just hanging around the house, though, he's, you know, laying over in the corner. He's not right under my feet. And to give you an example of that is I'm sitting here at my desk. I'm talking to you. Without his vest on, he would be laying over by the air conditioner or maybe in the bathroom on the cool floor or looking out the window. But if he had his vest on, he would be right here at my feet. He would not move until I either gave him a command to go away or, um, you know, to go get something or, I mean, he's waiting on the next command. He does not sleep when his vest is on. He is awake and alert the entire time. If that's 10 hours, 12 hours, whatever that is, that is very hard on the dog to do. They like the rest. They like the nap. Mm -hmm. So when his vest is off, though, he is a regular dog most of the time, unless called upon by a command. Tell me about the relationship he has with the kids. How old are your children? My kids are two and three, almost three and four. They also have been trained that when Reacher has his vest on, he's working and it's a no touch time. And when Reacher's vest is off, you can play with him all you want. Hmm. He has been awesome with the kids. As a matter of fact, what he's learning uh, right now is kind of interesting. I was out in the backyard playing with the kids. I had the little hose out and Reacher's jumping up and biting water and you know, just having a good old time and I'm spraying the kids with water hose and they run around in their, you know, little swimsuits having a blast in the water. And then my three-year-old took off across the grass further than I could get him. And I called him a couple of times and he didn't come back. So I started yelling at like being more aggressive with my voice. Richard did not like that at all, but it, made me realize that if my kids were in the front yard, luckily we were in the backyard, but if my kids were in the front yard, I can't physically run after them. So Reacher is in training right now for kid retrieval. What is that going to look like? Well, so my trainer has an eight-year-old and what they're doing is they are running around and Reacher already knows how to block. So he knows how to block and cover. And how that helps me is like, let's say we're in a crowded place. And people are too close to me. I don't like that feeling. So he will use his body and not aggressively, but he will use his body to position between, you know, me and somebody else or me and a couple of somebody else's. Um, He'll also pace, which let's say I'm standing. uh, This happens to me often. uh, I speak on a lot of stages. I'll come down from stage and there'll be six or 10 people that want to talk to me instead of him sitting by my side. I might have a semicircle around me and he'll just pace back and forth in that little area. And everybody kind of naturally moves back. (laughs) He's not being aggressive in any way, but people tend to move. Um, 
standing in the Lowe's or Home Depot line, people like to crowd you a little bit and I can give him a cover command where he'll sit or stand behind me just looking people in the eye. (laughs) He's good at enforcing social distancing these days. He is. (laughs) Um, So we're using that same blocking technique that he uses and we're training him to block the road Hmm. from the kids. And we've escalated that a little bit. He was doing that today. I uh, got a couple little sneak peeks, but uh, the trainer's daughter is actually wearing a, a pretty thick coat right now. And um, he's teaching him to go up and actually pull back on clothes just long enough for me to either get there or, you know, to get them out of the road, which is kind of unique. I don't exactly know what it's going to look like, but we're in the process of it. And it's all because it was a need that arose. And like I said, it's a constant thing to keep training the dogs to support your life. Are you okay if we kind of go back a little bit into your history to figure out why you need a PTSD service dog? Yeah, sure. So 14 and a half years in the Marines. Yeah. And I've seen that you've been shot more than once. A couple times. And you've seen a lot of not so great things in in places like Afghanistan and the Horn of Africa and Iraq. Yeah. And you come from a long line of military folks, right? Your father and your grandfather. How many generations? Eight. Eight generations. And uh, you live in Massachusetts now, but there's a little voice thing that says that you're probably from the South. Where are you from? Georgia? North Carolina. North Carolina. Okay. So... Talk for a moment about your commitment to veterans. Well, I I mean, it runs deep. I mean, no doubt about that. That's a soft spot in my heart just because, you know, I know what these guys go through and it is, um, it's not pretty when you're, you're leaving the military to, you know, try to get back to the quote unquote real world, as I've been told. And you know, I, I think I think a lot of people have missed the boat on, you know, our, our service people. I think as a whole, people forget that, you know, rough men stand ready to dish out violence on your behalf so that you can sleep at night. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know what it meant for me to serve. I know what it meant for my family. I know what it meant to the families of the guys that didn't make it back. I've lost a lot of friends and I I think a lot of people do not have a connection there and they forget, you know, how many people are serving them at any given moment, basically just waiting on the call for help, you know, and people forget that you can pick up a phone if things go crazy in your life, you can pick up the phone and dial three digits and there'll be a fleet of people there at any given moment. <laughs> Christmas, Thanksgiving, holidays, weekends, you know, whatever. There will be people that show up. That's crazy if you think about it, that somebody else would put it in their life to answer the call no matter time or day, no matter, you know, you could say some crazy stuff. You could literally call and you could say, hey, there's somebody sawing through my door with a chainsaw trying to kill me and somebody will show up to take care of that problem. Right. (laughs) That's That's crazy to think about. And so I've been 
you know, blessed and honored to be able to work with those people in, you know, 63 different countries. And, uh, you know, not all of them made it back. And that is a, that's a huge commitment for people to take. And then I don't feel like we do a very good job at helping them to leave from that world and come to a different world. And if you think it's not different, you are sadly mistaken. I mean, it is a huge jump. And just to put that in perspective, when I was in the military, I knew everything about my life. Everything. I mean, I knew where I was going to eat, what I was going to make, what I was going to wear, what job I was going to do whenever I got wherever they told me I was going to go. If I didn't know, there's a manual on the wall. There's a manual for the radio and how to start the vehicle and how to wear your uniform and how to put on your ribbons and how to like everything you could think of. And then I had a whole peer group of people that were doing the same exact thing as me, wearing the same exact uniform, wearing the same exact gear, having the same exact combat load. And then if that didn't work, I had somebody above me that I could go to. And then I had a staff NCO and then I had an officer. And if that didn't work, I could request mass all the way up to the commandant of the Marine Corps to ask him a a question, Hmm. right? Go from that to the next day you're off of active duty. There are either no rules or there are endless amounts of rules that you've never even been told before. And that starts manifesting itself in ways that you cannot imagine until you're in the spot. Like, for example, there's this thing called HR that you go to when you're going to get fired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know because I've been there twice. There's this thing called a resume that you got to fill out. And theoretically, I know what a resume is, but how do you do that? What do you wear when you have not made a single decision on what you were going to wear for, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 years. And then all of a sudden they're like, Hey, you got a job interview. What do you wear? Like it's all things that people that weren't in the military just kind of learned. Like the first ones they messed up, but they were messing up when they were 17 or 18 years old out of high school, or maybe they were 20, 21 out of college, but they get a lot of leniency from their would be employer or their employer because They say, oh, don't worry about it. He's right out of school. He doesn't know any better. Or she's right out of college. She doesn't know any better. Here is the way to do it. But let's say you spend 20 years in the military. And now you come out and you're 38 years old and you don't know what to wear to a job interview. That gets much, much more difficult. And I'm using job interview, but there's a lot bigger things. But just to to show the point, I was 36 before I ever wrote a check. Mm. You think about that. Like I never knew how to write a check because I never, I was told when I joined the Marine Corps, when you get a bill, you go to S1, you fill out this direct deposit form and that's it. Your bills are taken care of. And what you get in the bank account is yours to spend, (laughs) right? That is far different than being 38 years old going, how do I write this check again? Like, I think I remember from like sixth grade when I saw my mom write a check, it's just weird things. And some people say, well, you know, common sense will get you through it. But I'm telling you, it is so drastically different. And there's so many things that are happening all at once. You end up dropping things and it becomes overwhelming. And I think that's why a lot of people have such a hard time on top of things that you can't see, injuries that you can't see. 
you know, at the same time, if they're dealing with all of that and their employer doesn't understand PTSD and they don't understand just some random things that military people are more prone to or more prone to act on that are different than civilians, employers just don't know how to respond to it. And unfortunately, the human brain, when taught from a young age to do certain things, like in my example, run towards gunfire, <laughs> like in my example, locate, close with and destroy the enemy by use of fire and maneuver. When you get that and then you go and you work at, I don't know, some security firm, because that seems to be an easy pick for us. And then something crazy happens. But the book for the security firm says, leave out the fire exit. But what you've been taught is to go into action and, you know, take care of that threat so that others don't have to do it or endure it. You end up with people getting criminal lawsuits filed on them for trying to do the right thing, getting, you know, civil lawsuits brought on them because they they hit somebody a little too hard or they tackled a little too hard or they used a, a weapon of opportunity a little too much. But the human brain is hard to turn off like that. It's do you have a choice? Yes, you do. But when you've been trained to do something for so long, and I want you to think about this from, from a civilian point of view. If I took you into a situation where I, you know, I, I took you out and I made you fend for your life, life and death situation over and over and over for years on an end. And in between doing that, I'm going to give you three or four weeks where you go from elevated peak stress over and over and over, get comfortable being super stressed out so that you can pull yourself down and still think in stressful environments. And then I'm just going to turn you out on the town where nobody understands what you're going through. And then, oh, by the way, two weeks later, I'm going to pull you back in, put you in a uniform, and I want to elevate that stress. And you still have to operate at 100%. It is so difficult for the human brain and for the psyche and for the emotions required to do those jobs. It is very, very hard to get people to escalate up and down, up and down, up and down and be able to hold it for a long time. Cause we're not talking about these, these deployments aren't three days long. You know, these deployments are months on end and I want you to go over there and I want you to be at a hundred percent nonstop for six months. Right. And then I want you to come back and take your, your wife and kids out to the movies and, you know, to dinner and go hang out at the bar and all that stuff. It, it's really, really hard for guys to do that. But Man. I will tell you, my service dog does help me do that because he creates space. He lets me know when somebody's coming around the corner. He, he, his being in close proximity to me helps me stay out of a lot of those situations where something has a higher likelihood of happening. Now, the longer I'm out of the military, I believe innately uh, some of that does diminish over time. My, my sight recall isn't what it once was my attention to detail isn't what it once was my uh my visual profiling of a room is not what it once was but i still have flashes of that and weirdly as long as reacher is between me and the what could be perceived threat i feel like there's a much more there's an extra split second or a half that is there that I can be like, oh, that's not a threat. That's just somebody coming around the corner at the same time that I am. That is 
the most eloquent description of what a veteran goes through and why it is difficult for so many to assimilate back into civilian society and the role of what a service dog can do and help with that is amazing in the military. And then you formerly also worked for state department and secret service and a lot of other government agencies. There are a lot of dogs that you encounter. How are those dogs different or similar to the ones that, that we all may know every day? Yeah. I mean, those dogs are trained to do very specific things. And I've been all the way from, you know, bomb sniffing and ammunition sniffing dogs to, I mean, there's arson dogs, there's cadaver dogs, there's all kinds of different dogs out there that are, that are highly trained. I even met a, like a real life track them down bloodhound one time, which ended up being a, a really good story. I was in Tennessee and we were we just happened to be on a task force doing something else. And they called us in and said, hey, would you mind coming out? There's a 13-year-old boy that's been lost in the woods. It's going on two days. And I ended up meeting this bloodhound that within like six hours had found this kid on the side of a you know mountain, which was really, really cool. But that dog could not sit on command, right? Like he could, he could sniff out a person, you know eight miles away, but could not sit on command or get his, his big hind parts in the vehicle when asked to without some help, you know? <laughs> so I think the, the real answer is depending on how the dog was brought up and how the dog was trained and how much love the dog was given compared to how much, you know, human stimulation the dog got. When uh, my dog was younger, he was, you know, taken around and shown people and, you know, he's not aggressive to people or other animals. He is very well behaved in that, but that's all because of experience and exposure. Military dogs don't quite have that same exposure. They're not given a whole lot of people basically. And I don't want to, you know, I don't know where the line here is, but I know that a lot of those dogs are Anybody that's not in camouflage in a uniform could potentially not be a great person to them. Mm -hmm. Military dogs, I'm speaking of, mm -hmm. they get far less exposure to people that don't wear camouflage. Mm -hmm. And camouflage is supposed to be something that they don't want to chew on, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, which is a good thing. And it also kind of depends on what the dog is specifically being trained for. Is it close quarters battle? Is it CQB where they're going to be going and searching houses looking for a suspect? Or are they going to be crowd control? Or are they going to have to do both? Mm -hmm. Or are they going to need to chase people down and, and subdue them until their counterpart gets there? All that stuff goes into it. And all of those dogs are the highly trained to do things that dogs aren't normally going to do, like jump out of a perfectly good helicopter or airplane or uh, load off the back of a seven-ton truck or, you know, get down and crawl <laughs> in the prone position for a half a mile and wear goggles and, you know, um, just all kinds of crazy things they have to be exposed to. Gunfire. I had a really good friend of mine that had a dog that, that would literally hold his breath so that he could shoot off the back of a dog. Now, why you would ever want to do that, I don't know. 
but the dog would do it, in, you know, at, at the range. It was more or less to give the dog confidence that the rifle that was shooting beside him was not an aggressive tool. So they did more things to get that experience and exposure around that and to where the dog just didn't pay attention anymore to a shooting rifle or a shooting pistol. It's a loud noise. It should, you know, regular dogs will cower away at that. But through experience and exposure, they don't pay attention to it anymore. Patch Baker relies on Reacher to help him with his PTSD. And he's also someone who wants other veterans who need a service dog to be able to access one. Next on the long leash, why Patch has some concerns over the new PAWS Act that has been signed by the president, which is a pilot program set to provide service dogs and training to people like him. We'll be right back. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green, grassy, beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog and for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. So President Biden just signed the Pause Act. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that? He did, yeah. What do you think about the Pause Act and what does it mean for a former military like yourself? Uh, this is probably not going to be popular, but it means that there's going to be a bunch of non-educated people flooding into the space. Mm-hmm. And the result is going to be weakened for the veterans. That's my thought. Now, are there great people out there that are going to do great things? Of course there are. But I unfortunately feel that's going to be a a vast minority. Because dog trainers are going to be preying on the fact that there's some federal funds to help veterans get these service dogs. Yes, because people misuse that stuff. To my knowledge, there's not a cohesive system for service dogs. Anybody that has that breaks out a, a piece of paper that says, you know, my dog is certified it's BS. There's no central database for it. There's no uh, guidelines of what a service dog can or can't do. Some of that is by the nature of 
some dogs are trained specifically for individual people. Those individual people have certain needs that are unique and different to them. But what that also means is you can get snowed on just because a dog can sit or stay does not make them a service dog. And what you have in my experience is you have lots of people that are doing the basic obedience training things. And then they're claiming that they're service dogs and they don't actually have the skill or the ability. And it becomes especially apparent when dogs need to learn more than four or five commands. And, you know, some dogs can retain sit and speak and stay, you know, they can retain that. But when you get up to, you know, post and cover and assist and pull and, you know, some of those things, they run out of space in their little doggy brain. Mm -hmm. And it takes special dogs and it takes, it really takes special trainers that are not just dog centric, which is, is hard for people to understand. You may be great at training a dog, but if you're not also great at understanding people, understanding how to pair a dog to a person, you can take a great dog, put them with the wrong person and the dog underperforms. You can take a, a great person and put them with the wrong dog and they treat the dog poorly. It's just in beta and it's only, I think it starts next year and it's a five-year test program, but it's designed to help get service dogs in the hands of veterans. And you were concerned, like, mm, I think this will create a lot of problems. How can you apply your entrepreneurial business sense to maybe make this a win-win? To be honest with you, I don't know that it's possible from my spot. And I'm also a realist in a lot of ways. I am a dreamer and I, I do want to do some pretty incredible things during my lifetime. But there are some things that I also realize are, are out of my control. I, I don't have the ability to go out and implore trainers to not fake the funk when it comes to their skills and abilities with animals. I don't have the ability to reach every veteran that's trying to get a, a service dog. And I, there are not enough service dogs to go around that are highly trained like that. But I also, I have high hopes and I, I hope for the best. And I try to do that through education. But I, I believe that there's a lot of opportunity seekers out there that are going to take advantage of it. And that's unfortunate for me. What I wanted was for there to be a standardized test. I wanted for there to be a standardized set of qualifications, but I, it's not going to happen. And that is unfortunate to me because I think that means a lot of veterans are going to spend a lot of money on a lot of dogs that are not going to fit the need. I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to do minimum basic requirements, you know, sit, stay, walk on my left side and call it a service dog because the opportunity is too great for them to financially. And, and they have to churn numbers too. That's another thing. Like a lot of these people that, and I've, I've met them. I mean, I've met them firsthand. They say they're creating service dogs and what they're really doing is they're creating puppy farms hmm. and, you know, giving them minimum basic skills for the, for the animals and, um, and kicking them out as fast as they possibly can. And I think that as a travesty, I, I really, I, I'm taking a, a strong, firm line on this, but I really feel like it's disgraceful 
in a lot of ways. I mean, it is, it, I don't know if it should be a crime, but it is highly disgraceful. And by the way, I just want to make this very clear. My dog is not a pet. My dog is a medical device. My dog is the exact same as a wheelchair. So if I put out a crappy wheelchair that fell apart with people that could not catch themselves, everybody would say that's a terrible thing. Kind of a little bit of a liability. Yeah. I mean, it's a terrible thing. There is no recourse when you sell somebody a $30,000 dog that can't do anything but sit, stand, you know, the minimum basics. That is not a service dog. That is a very expensive dog that went to basic obedience school. Mm-hmm. And that is frustrating. My dog is a medical device. I use him for my physical condition. And, you know, nobody else would let a medical device go out there without the basic parameters of what is acceptable to go to the marketplace. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not a single hospital bed out there that hasn't been through all kinds of testing. There's not an apparatus in a hospital or an emergency vehicle that has not been through excruciating torture in in R&D labs and second and third tier reporting and testing. Why don't we do that for service animals, which are considered medical devices and requirements? So that's my thought. I think that's a really good question. And as an entrepreneur, is there a way to to do that? Because this is clearly, it feels like it's an opportunity. It is. That would benefit a lot of folks. I'm going to change the subject real quick, okay. but I promise I'll bring it back. Okay. So I rogered up that I was going to give some money to do some wells in another country. And I ended up, I think we did like three or four of them. And I ended up meeting a guy that said that he was going to build a well in the same exact place that we had built a well like a couple of months before. And I was like, how is that possible? We've already built a well there. And he said, oh, yeah, it's gone. And I said, what do you mean it's gone? He said, well, you put the well in and you spend a couple of months teaching them how to do it. But as soon as you leave, they take out all the pipe and they take away all the motors and they sell them all on the black market and they fill back in the hole. And then they put their hand up and said, hey, we could use a well over here. And I said, then why do you keep doing it? He said, that's my job, man. I don't work for a nonprofit. I work for a well company. They get the contracts. I go where I'm supposed to. And that's the same exact thing that I feel like is happening here. As long as there are people that determine what is the Paul's Act that have no understanding of what we require in these dogs, you're never going to have, I feel that I am not in a position to go stand on Capitol Hill to get the things in the bill that need to be, but there are people out there that can do it. And I can, I can definitely lobby for that, but I'm not PC enough to be that guy. Now, could I start my own facility and could I hire the best trainers and could I start, you know, down that path? Of course I could. It's not something that I'm probably going to pursue because I have other things on my plate, but I hope somebody does it just for me. I think there's so many things that are not being taken care of in that original write-up. And when that happens, you ever seen the movie War Dogs? Yes. Those guys had no idea what they were doing, but landing huge government contracts. And they pulled off some crazy stuff. Kudos to them for that. But I think that's exactly what's going to happen. And you're going to turn a lot of puppy farms into making a lot of money Mm. instead of actually getting the money to do what it was ultimately supposed to do. 
in the end. And and that's terrible. And I, I'm sorry I have that opinion because I know a lot of people are are excited about it. I've just seen stuff like this in reality. It's not, you know, you end up causing a bigger problem than you did when you started out. <laughs> Is there anything that can be done at this point before the program starts? I mean, if you had, you know, a bunch of congressmen and senators in, in one room to actually show what a real dog looks like and then go buy, you know, 10 or 20 or 50 dogs and bring them in from places that are supposed to be helping veterans and you see those dogs in actions there, it's a clear difference. And I think that would open some eyes. But other than that, I don't really know how. Isn't DOD going to manage this program? <laughs> you laugh. I mean, I'm not exactly sure that that is a capability that is in their wheelhouse to do extremely well, which is a tragedy that DOD would be requested to even do this. I mean, it's not their, look, that's not our job. I know what they're going to do. They're going to take a bunch of dudes from the MPs that went to canine school and they're going to say, hominus dominus, now you're working over here because they don't have anybody else to do it, Hmm. right? And that's a terrible situation to put them in and underperformance is almost a certainty. And that's terrible. It should not be that. I mean, I'd rather see it go to like some of the veteran organizations out there that specifically deal with this and know the medical aspect and the dog aspect and the the pairing of those two for the best outcome of the veteran, keeping in mind the humanitarian effort of the dog. I mean, there are some dogs I've literally seen, and this is terrible to say, this is absolutely horrible to say, but I'm going to say it because I think it's important is I've seen dogs. I've seen service dogs die because the people that they were serving were not physically able to take care of the dog. That is a terrible thing, but it's, it is not the veteran's fault and it's not the dog's fault. It's the placement of that dog. They cared more about the money than the placement of the dog and the service of the veteran. And that is terrible. Patch Baker may have been fired twice from real jobs in civilian life, but then he realized What he needed to do was to make it in the so-called real world. And so he built a business based on something he already knew, the military. That is coming up next. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Patch Baker, after your time in the military, you returned to civilian life. But that wasn't an easy transition. Tell me about that. Well... I guess the story is on patchbaker.com, but the condensed version is I had a really hard time figuring out how to play the corporate rules or the normal uh, business rules. So I just decided I was going to build my own stuff and I was going to build it exactly like what I knew from the military. And from there, it was a world that I could live within. And um, I started getting really good people uh, positioned around me that saw my vision and we have a lot of former military people, so they they got it right away. 
And from there, I just, uh, I just wanted to start running missions of my own, you know, a little different, but you know, ultimately, you know, we have a defined mission, we've got commander's intent and we've got end state. And, uh, that's what, how we attack everything now. Define each of those. Cause those are all military terms. Patch. Yeah. I mean, you know, clearly defining a mission is how you get a group of two or more people to act in conjunction in order to come to the conclusion of a like in kind successful goal, right? Whatever that is. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can break this down by football terms too. It doesn't matter what team we play on, whether it's backyard ball or it's a professional team, you have to clearly define the end zone. And you have to clearly define these are the rules that we're going to play within to get to that end zone. Now, I don't really care if we get to it two yards at a time or we get to it in 22 seconds. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care. That thing makes me points. And at the end of this game, I want us to have more points than the other team. Mm -hmm. Clearly defined goals. So the mission is get to the end zone or put points on the board through you know, a field goal, right? That's the mission. We want to win this game. I clearly define it though. And I think that's where a lot of entrepreneurs mess up. I don't have that same problem because I literally do a mission statement the same way that I received in the military when we were going to take over some 10 digit grid in the middle of a third world country. I mean, it's the same idea. I I have to know what I'm trying to do when I get there so that I know what resources, what assets, what am I going to have to take in order to win this fight, whatever that is. So what you do now is you acquire a good value businesses yeah. in different fields and then you enhance them. So what is an example of a business that you created a mission statement for that is, you know, that pulls from what you learned in the Marines? Yeah, I, I don't even have to equate it to to my own business. If we have a product that's going out to market, in the military, you have to acquire battle space. In the business world, you have to acquire marketplace, right? It's the same thing. What does acquiring that mean? Well, for most people, it's sell more stuff. Mm-hmm. So, hey, our goal is to take this product to market, figure out what will make people buy it, and grow this company. My commander's intent is how I want you to do it. So it's, we're going to use Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Google, TikTok, Twitch, whatever. We're going to make high quality videos. We're going to use six different people to make six different videos in order to get diversity in our marketing, in order to get you know reach for different age groups in our market. We're also going to set up email campaign to remarket the people after we've already gotten them to take a low product offer. We're going to run them through this Ascension model. We're going to sell them one thing and then we're going to try to upsell them another thing or another thing. We're going to try to increase our cart value. We're going to try to increase our lifetime value of a customer. We're going to try to retain customers through some kind of reoccurring payment system or club or something like that. That's all in commander's intent. And then end state is pretty easy. By the time you are done, we will be selling this million dollar company now for $9 million. The end. And that's a big write-up. But I could do the same exact thing on this piece of information just hit the news. So we are launching this thing tomorrow. 
in order to facilitate sales on this business using this method. And by the time you're done, we're going to have more sales on that particular day than any other day. A great example of it. Yesterday was International Dog Day. It was. Well, if on Good Morning America, they say, hey, it's International Dog Day. And I didn't know that. I would say, in the next two hours, we need to come up with this, 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 and this. We're going to market today for a sale for International Dog Day. I just learned that on the news. We call it newsjacking, right? Anytime something happens on the news or something is happening in the market or something is happening on Twitter hashtags or something is trending on Netflix or whatever, we try to use those things to immediately spin up things, like immediately get them out to market. And that's the game we play. And and when you get good at it, it is an incredible game to play. It is a fun game to play. But you need to be playing chess, not checkers. It's not not the same as saying, hey, I got this grand plan. And in three years, I'm going to move from point A in the business to point B in the business. This is more of a knife fight. (laughs) You know, it's, it's more responding to the market as quickly as you possibly can and getting something else up to serve the market in the way that they're saying through data that they want to be served. I don't care about comments as much as I care about looking at data and understanding that regardless of what they say, because lots of people will say they don't do something, they won't do something, but in all actuality, they will do it and they want to do it. And they are thankful that you allow them to do it through your product or service but they'll tell their buddies. It's like riding a moped, right? Nobody wants to, to say they ride a moped, but they're fun if you get on one. <laughs> yeah. You want to do it in, you know, where everybody can't see you, but it's still fun. So your company is called Mobius Media, and your ability to newsjack or to peg to an event is in, in no small part attributed to the fact that you have a good team around you, which you have built, which comes from your military background and training. How did you recruit that team and how did you pay for it? Well, I mean, they've already been able to pay for themselves. I mean, I'm a big proponent that if you can't attribute value for the company to somebody's actions, you probably shouldn't have them on the payroll. Hmm. And lots of people keep people around for a long time because of emotions. I don't really do that. And it's not that I don't care about people. It's just, it's a math problem, right? Right. You either bring more money in than you cost or you are no longer here. But I basically learned from General Mattis. I I was lucky enough and blessed enough to be on his uh, PSD team, private security detail. And um, I, I got to see him in action, both in good times and in bad. And his leadership really, I mean, it, it changed the course of my life in, in a lot of ways. I watched him seemingly have all the answers. But when I was able to go in the, you know, go in the closed door meetings and I saw him, there was a problem presented uh, and I watched him look to his left and to his right and talk to his specialists and talk to the guys that knew and they would give him a brief and then he would make a decision. And everybody, you know, everybody might have came into the room with different ideas, but when the man spoke, everybody left that room with the same exact idea. He wasn't making it in a vacuum. He wasn't making decisions in a vacuum. He was using his experts sitting right there to help him formulate a plan almost in real time based off of new information. And that's what I basically say. And that's why I believe that we're such 
a good marketing team is because we are really, really good and tuned into, I don't need to know everything as a CEO. I really, truly don't. Actually, the less I know, the better off everybody probably is. Because if I know, you know, I have 49 companies. If I know everything that's going on in, every, in all 49 companies, there's something seriously wrong. Mm-hmm. I should only know about things when there's a problem or the numbers aren't where they're supposed to be, or we're bringing on a new revenue stream, or there's a big manufacturing contract I need to be aware of, or there's a merger or an acquisition or exit or something. But for the most part, I don't need to know everything. Now that took me three years to get here, but I just set them up in ways where I was trying to figure out where in the beginning, where was all of my time spent and I would hire for that position. So I didn't have to do it anymore. And I just kept doing it over and over and over. But I also was smart enough to know that I didn't know anything about anything. So I would hire people that would teach me those things. And that was part of their job. I tell my people, I want you to be perfect. And I know there's somebody listening to this podcast that just threw the the BS flag and they say there's no such thing as perfect. But I don't believe that. I believe there is perfect. But let me give you what the definition of perfect is to me. Perfect means that you give 100% of what you have to give when you're saying, I'm going to do this for you. James, I told you I would come on your podcast and I'm trying to give you 100% of what I have to give on this podcast. I'm not texting on my phone. I'm not scrolling through LinkedIn or Facebook. I am 100%. I'm in a quiet place. You know, I am doing everything that I can to give you 100% of what I have to give. Now, based off of your questions and my answers and whatever editing that might happen into this show before it goes out, I'm trying to give you the best interview that I possibly can. Now, if you come to me after this and you say, you know what, Patch? It was an okay interview. It wasn't a great interview. Let me tell you six ways that you can make your interview better. I'm going to listen to you with open ears and I'm going to try to apply that the next time that I'm on your podcast. That is being perfect. It's giving you 100%. I literally, if you ask anyone in my organization, anyone at all from the top to the bottom, if you ask them, what is the policy if you're going to come to work at 99%? Every single one of them will tell you, call in sick. I would rather you stay home and the team knows that they have to cover your spot than you to come in at 95 or 85 or 70 or 50% because they're going to get blindsided. They're expecting you to cover the role and you don't. They don't know that they're supposed to be covering, and that is terrible. I want to have 100% of what you have to give on every decision that you make in the company, and as long as you can explain to me why you made that decision, you will never be wrong in my book. I will back you up 100%, even if it lost us tens of thousands of dollars, and I'll tell you exactly why. Because I can take a ten dollars or $20,000 or $30,000 loss, and if you can explain to me, hey, I made this decision because of this, this, and this. And I say, the first two this is were great. What you don't know is this other this. Let me explain to you this other this. This, this, and this is how you need to go forward in the future. Then they make great decisions and make me tens of thousands of dollars with every new decision that they make. 
So 99% won't cut it. 100% is exactly what I expect. If you give me 100% of what you have to give, I will always back you up. I will always get you what you need. I will always be there to defend you. I will fire clients if they don't appreciate your 100%, which I've done, <laughs> much to some of my team's dismay <laughs> sometimes. But I know that a team giving 100% and watching each other's backs and taking care of the team before themselves, I always knew this. If I took care of my company's logo, the company would always take care of me. <laughs> I always knew that. Just like if I took care of the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps would take care of me. And I tried to do that same exact thing. And I instilled that in a way that the peer pressure to be great is just the standard working with Mobius or one of our companies. And when that is the standard, you don't have people hang around that are B-rate players. They kind of weed themselves out very quickly. And that's what's helped us grow so fast. When you talk about giving it 100%, how does that inure to the benefit of the consumer, the customer, the person who is actually buying the product or service that you're involved in the making of? Well, I mean, like I have a print company. I have a t-shirt company. So let's just say whoever the t-shirt operator is, is not loading the print properly. That means he's not at 100% or she's not at 100%, which means the end result is you get a crooked logo on your t-shirt when you get it in the mail that doesn't work. If we are perfect in what we do and we strive for excellence in what we do at the top or at the place of origin, regardless of what that means, the end result will be a known outcome of excellence at the consumer level. That's the tail end. That's, that's almost like the ultimate QC as to whether we did our job yet and did it properly and excited our fans and our client pool. But I, I think that is way down the list of where problems should be detected because the person that's taking those off the press and putting them on the, the dryer, they should be QCing them. And then, you know, whoever's folding them should be QCing them and whoever the QC should be unfolding them and looking at them. And, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of things that should be the stopgap. And we put a lot of checks and balances in how we do operations, but that's just fundamentally the part of how we do it. Just like, when you're getting ready to go out on patrol and you have self-checks and buddy checks and fire team checks and squad leader checks and platoon leader checks before you go out on patrol, there's a reason for that. You know, check, recheck, triple check, <laughs> double check the triple check, you know, like that is a uh, part of the process. But because it's built in from the very beginning, if something goes out the door and it's wrong, like there's a lot of heads that are going to roll because of that. Patch Baker, thank you so much for this uh, long, this is why we call it the long leash, where we have these conversations that are a bit meandering, but all kind of make sense in broader context. I appreciate you spending time with us today. Awesome being here. Thanks for having me. Patch Baker, U.S. Marine Corps veteran, CEO, investor, and business development consultant. I really appreciate his frank and, and fearless take on life and on business. We will have a link in the show notes so that you can find out more about Patch Baker and his inspiring work. He is a pretty interesting fellow. I hope you check him out. A big thanks to Patch for being on the show today. But most of all, I want to thank you for hitting that play button and listening. 
please follow the Long Leash in your favorite podcast app. And don't forget, we have a number of shows here at Dog Podcast Network that you may find interesting. You can go to our website and learn about our award-winning podcast, Dog Cancer Answers, and our flagship show, which is called Dog Edition. All the links are on our website at dogpodcastnetwork.com. Here at DPN, we'd love to know what you think about our shows. So you can let us know by going to our website and clicking on the little blue microphone icon, which is located on the bottom right of every episode page. And you can leave us a voicemail or you can just get in touch with us through any of our social channels. All the links are on our website, which you can find by simply typing in longleashshow.com into any browser, longleashshow.com. Oh, please do tell a friend about The Long Leash and about Dog Podcast Network so that we can continue to grow our audience of dog lovers around the world. Again, thank you for listening today. I'm James Jacobson. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, we wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.